The following live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati is presented by agamayoga.com. Namaste to all of you and good evening. We will continue tonight with the commentaries on the Tibetan Yoga of the Disciple. Essentially, the teachings given to aspirants in yoga and young practitioners in yoga by the Tibetan gurus along the centuries, these teachings, while a bit rough and sharp, nevertheless they express the experience, the invaluable life experience of the Tibetan gurus <coughs> concerning the practice of yoga in their environment in those days. The chapter in which we move now is the chapter number 18 and it is called the Ten Self-Imposed Troubles. It is a chapter which you will see again has some very sharp sense of humor. This kind of combination of Ajna and Manipura which the Tibetans had was creating a very easily a tendency towards sarcasm and usually sarcasm is a is more like the devil is endowed with sarcasm, but sometimes spiritual beings have also used sarcasm to just expose some of the ridiculous, some of the caricatural aspects in people's bad excuses, motivations, hiding, behind words, and all that. That is why here you are going to see that the Tibetan gurus, they use again similes, they use comparisons, and those comparisons can sound for some very uncompassionate. But actually from the standpoint of the Tibetan gurus, it was much more compassionate to wake up people, to give them a cold shower. If they were not uh, for soothsaying or for political correctness, they were simply speaking out their truth the way they saw it, the way they felt it. The first of the ten self-imposed troubles, you know that it has been said, that man's worst enemy is man himself. Man is sometimes his own worst enemy. That's why most of the troubles are self-imposed troubles. And let's list them. The first, to enter the state of householder without means of sustenance produces self-imposed trouble as does an idiot eating aconite. Aconite is a poisonous plant and 
the Tibetans say an idiot would eat aconite, a decent person would not do such a thing, a smart person would not make such a mistake, and to enter the state of householder without means of sustenance. See, it starts with something which is not even referring to the spiritual life. It says to enter the state of householder, like exactly people who will not go into a monastery, people who will not dedicate 20 years to the practice of yoga. These are precisely the people who enter the state of householder, which means getting married, having children, building a family, and all that. And the Tibetan yogis, although they are concerned with the spiritual practice, they weren't. They say to enter the state of a householder without means of sustenance. Means of sustenance means, therefore, having the means of sustaining your life. It means having enough land, buildings, money to buy some land or to create a business which will sustain you. Like, of course, they think about the obligations of it in the medieval Tibetan times, people were living according to their obligations. When a man was entering in the state of householder, he automatically assumed some obligations. Like, if there, come, if there comes a war, and or if bandits attack your house, it is the man's duty as a householder to take up weapons and defend his wife and children. And if he dies in the process, that's the way it is. It has happened for thousands of years, and it will happen again, most probably. Therefore, it's an obligation. No? When bandits are attacking your house, you don't expect the children to pick up weapons and defend their house or land. No? It's the father of the family that has to be doing that. It's the dharma of being born as a man. There is nothing to vote about it. There is nothing to... Today, people have lost this because we live in a world where there is a lot of gender mix-up and a lot of misunderstanding of roles. But some roles can never change. And as I told to people who are confused in their gender roles, God behave you that you should witness a third world war and we get back to Stone Age, because then you'll see what really matters in nature. You know, it's like we can build a dream world like a castle made of playing cards, but in the moment when electricity stops for six months, then we're back to step one. And then some things matter, and some things don't matter at all. Like nature is the way nature is. You cannot fake nature. Therefore, many people live today in relationships and conditions which are not according to nature. If you'd be thrown on an island alone for 10 years, all those, or in a small community, all those things would disappear. All, all the relationships and all the important and unimportant people, uh, things, values, would be reshuffled instantaneously. Therefore, 
In those days, people living a more primitive life, a life closer to nature, of course the roles were clear. And to enter the state of householder without means of sustenance, it's like, what are you going to do? You want to make a family so that then both you and your family and your children should be beggars and dying of hunger? then you should behave and not make children in such conditions. Why do you want to make children when you are a beggar? To create more beggars? It's like, why do you want to torture a soul, bringing it into a body, when you have nothing to really offer to that soul, as it incarnates in your family? Like, here... The Tibetan yogis point at the other side, but they simply say some people are so possessed by their instinct. There are people who simply have a powerful instinct to procreate. And they do procreate. They can't stop them from procreating. In countries where the overpopulation is a ticking bomb, people make ten children. It's like there is no logic to it. It's just an instinct out of control. It's just living instinctually. And then you just unleash your instinct upon the world, then you are not able to live up to the responsibility of that. So the Tibetan gurus want to say, make sure that if you want to be a householder or something similar, you are not just dominated by your instincts. You are not acting like a lemming, blindly, copying others, doing what everybody does. Think. Are you ready to shoulder the obligations which come with it? Psychology shows that children psychologically consider their parents as God. There are many, many psychological theories and practices in which children, people, when they get to be 20 years old or 30 years old, they still carry their parents within their psyche. Because in the moment when you depended on a person like your mother and life came from her and everything came from her, of course, psychologically for you, your mother was God. That's what your brain could understand about God. And up till the age of seven, your parents often seem to be infallible, extraordinary, have all the answers and all that. But that brings a responsibility. Because if a child is looking up to you to be shaped in character and you are giving that child shit, <coughs> then maybe you should have refrained from having children because it's a responsibility to be a parent. Some parents have built Jesus, Milarepa and Saint Teresa of Avila and some parents build Jack the Ripper and 120 other pedophile rapists. No? It's like something is getting wrong somewhere and therefore here, the Tibetan gurus simply say things should be done with responsibility. There is a responsibility in every decision that you take. And you have to learn to live 
with the decision that you have taken and not lightly. There are many parents who don't want to play God, but they do children anyway. And then the child, when he is four years old, the child gets to find out that mommy is depressed, that she cannot quit smoking, that she can't do this. She's then that God image is chipped seriously and that, that child will not be psychologically healthy. Like if you want to make a healthy child, you have to live up to certain standards. If you steal in front of your child and make it sound like it's okay, then you know you are putting something in your child. If the father is abusing sexually his little daughter, then that will create abnormality into that woman up till a certain point later and even at an early age. Therefore, it is very nasty when, for example, parents are gods that fall off their pedestal. Then maybe you should have thought twice before engaging on such a path. Because it's not an easy path to be a householder, to raise children, to do all those things. Therefore, Tibetan gurus want to put it in perspective with the spiritual practice. And funnily enough, the first of the self-imposed troubles, it's like, you know, even going into the life of the householder, you think it, but it's not that simple. Most people just do it irresponsibly. There is a responsibility the citizen of the traditional societies, the traditional Indian society, with its caste system and all the rest, the traditional Tibetan society, the tradition Afghan society, the traditional Chinese or Japanese society, they had to live according to Dharma. Everybody, not only spiritual people, are subjected to the process of evolution. And yama and niyama, morality and ethics, harmony and all those, they are valid for everybody, even for people who don't practice intensive spirituality. That is why it starts at the rock bottom, with people who think, oh, this doesn't concern us because we are not disciples into advanced intensive yoga. Yeah, But when it comes to self-imposed trouble, you can see that many people impose trouble onto themselves, such as, and uh, it's not at all gentle, or it's like an idiot eating aconite. You know, it's like, you are an idiot, according to the Tibetan gurus, if you do that. The second of the self-imposed troubles, to live a thoroughly evil life and disregard the doctrine, the doctrine in this case, the Buddhist doctrine for them, produces self-imposed trouble as does an insane person jumping over a precipice. Only an insane person would jump over a precipice. And that is again a sarcastic comparison. Very visual, very graphic. Like how stupid do you have to be to do that? And how stupid do you have to be to live a thoroughly 
evil life and disregard the doctrine. Like the Tibetan's guru would say, there was a man called Buddha. He risked everything on one throw of the dice and he found the answer to the big question. He had the compassion to spend another 40 years here on earth and to pass it on to the next generation and to create the Sangha and Buddhism. And we in Tibet, we are inheriting that through a chain of great continuators, through people like Padmasambhava and Milarepa and Tsongkhapa. Here we are in the, Tibet, in the Tibetan civilization, Buddhist by trade, and we are taught some wise answers. To live your life disregarding that, it's really stupid. It's like a lot of wisdom has been wasted on some people and they are just flushing it down the toilet. But the one who suffers is not Buddha. If Buddha tells you the truth and you disregard it, it's not Buddha that will suffer except perhaps shedding a tear out of compassion for your ignorance. It is still the ignorant one which suffers directly from this. And that is why the Tibetan Lamas are right in saying to live a thoroughly evil life. Like you understand from the Karma Yoga lecture in Agama. That you should not live an evil life. That the most simple consequence of listening to a Karma Yoga lecture is don't do any evil. The least you can do in this life is from now till the end of your life, refrain to do any evil. Don't do any evil physically, like giving physical pain and others. Don't do any evil verbally, like hurting people through the word. Don't do any evil mentally. That at least is in your power. Nobody can say it overpowered me. The need for me to hurt somebody was greater than my power to control myself. No, if you are in that condition, then you should consult a psychiatrist or something because you are suffering from severe mental problems. The normal human being cannot say I was overwhelmed by the desire to hurt somebody. Therefore, to live a thoroughly evil life when you have learned from Buddha how things are with karma, it's like, why would you do that? Why? You are an insane person jumping over a precipice. You are simply hurting yourself ridiculously. To And to disregard the doctrine. To disregard the doctrine. Like many people today disregard any doctrine. Christian, Islamic, Buddhist, Hindu, Jewish, they consider themselves emancipated and above all the doctrines. And eventually, you know that any tree shall be known by its fruits. People who are not spiritual in any way, then very often you can see the fruits. When you go and meet those people and they are 65 years old, then you start seeing what the fruits of that life was but then it's too late to start it all over and to fix things. People don't have the ojas, the enthusiasm 
to change their lives, to reform themselves, and then it's better luck next life. Therefore, to live a thoroughly evil life, give up evil, and disregarding the doctrine, whatever your doctrine is, but every person must live according to the principles of heaven, as the Taoists call them. Like there are some principles emanating from heaven. To live without guiding light, without guiding principles, disregarding any norms of spiritual growth, and to live a life which is thoroughly evil, as put here, that is another self-imposed trouble. You cannot say that somebody did it to you. You are doing it to yourself. It's self-imposed trouble, like the insane person jumping over a precipice. The third, to live hypocritically produces self-imposed trouble as does a person who puts poison in his own food. Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is another one of the great poisons. And hypocrisy in spiritual life is a very, very clear thing. There is so much hypocrisy. To live with hypocrisy, like people pretending to be spiritual, somebody has gone into some point and he or she is in the position of giving spiritual counseling. And then that person actually falls off the path in so many ways. But that person refuses to show it clearly. That person still lives in hypocrisy. There is a pretense, a mask, because that person says, well, this is what I am, this is what I have done for ten years, if I don't do this, what else am I going to do? Shall I start now to learn painting? Or shall I turn into a carpenter? Or what am I going to do? Ah, I will keep on doing this. And therefore the person pretends. The person lives in a hypocrisy. And the Tibetan gurus say you don't realize, but to live in a hypocrisy, to live in spiritual hypocrisy, to live hypocritically, produces self-imposed trouble, as does a person who puts poison in his own food. You see, the comparisons are varied. It's not the same kind. It's like you put poison in your own food. You eat, but your food is not good anymore. Your food is slowly, slowly killing you. Your food is slowly, slowly poisoning you. From one day to the next, from one month to the next, you are going worse and worse. This is how it is. Like the hypocrisy is not something which might damage you instantaneously. But the hypocrisy definitely is something which is going to poison you slowly. When you jump off a precipice, like in the number two statement, then you die pretty soon. It's a, a sudden death. But when you put poison little by little in your food, it can be an agony which lasts for ten years. That's the comparisons are not random. 
the comparisons are actually making lots of sense here. To live in hypocrisy, try to think a little bit how much hypocrisy is there in you in concerning some things. Is it worth it to live in hypocrisy? How far will it serve you? It saves the image one day and another day and meanwhile you are eating poison. That poison will start, will end by building up and then it's not good. Four, to be lacking in firmness of mind and yet attempt to act as the head of a spiritual community produces self-imposed trouble as does a feeble old woman who attempts to herd cattle. Especially in mountainous areas, to herd goats or sheep or cattle is an arduous job because you have to run for the cattle and summon it. You cannot afford to be a weakling when you go in the mountains herding cattle. And the image is ridiculous. The image is that of a feeble old woman who thinks ridiculously that she can herd cattle in the mountains. She cannot. It will be a total fiasco. She would better stay home and take care of her feebleness, not go out there and pretend she is up for such a job. And this applies especially to peculiar positions, because not all of you will attempt or do attempt to be the head of a spiritual community or something like that. But it is a warning, because you may reach there. You don't know how many people we get around here, especially since Agama became big, and people know there are constantly 200 spiritual seekers in Agama, and that's fresh meat. It's the market for all the people that sell alternative things. When we came here, we celebrate this year 10 years. When we came here 10 years ago, none of these most alternative things around was there. Today, Kopangan has become a mecca for alternative things. There is almost no resort which doesn't have a poster which says yoga or something because the Thais think that uh, it's, you know, yoga sells, and if we do it, they can do it, and that's it. They never crosses their mind that there might be something special about Agama. There are people who simply come here, they bring teachers, workshops, meetings, and they bring it right in the nose of Agama. I'm often asking, you know, why out of 777 islands of Thailand, everybody wants to come to Kopangan and to piss in somebody else's pool? You know, it's like, why? Why not go in Phuket? Why not go in Koh Chang or do something, you know? Because actually, there exists the thing that, oh, if those people succeeded, it means there is some gas oozing out of the ground in Kopangan, which makes people believe in yoga, and therefore it's a fertile ground. And it, no, they are not special. Their yoga is not special. It's not because of that, because that would make me have to feel that I am inferior to them, 
and what I do is lesser quality. And I can't accept that, because my pride would take a blow, and I would have to humble myself. Therefore, I am simply assuming that those people hit gold. There is something there which is good. And you don't know how many people who come around and they give satsangs and so on. You know, satsang in Sanskrit language, read it in Swami Shivananda or other, so you don't say, I make it up. Satsang means the company of the wise. So generally in India, the gurus are giving satsang. Satsang is not something which every Tom, Dick and Harry gives. In the moment when you say, I can give satsang, it implicitly says, I have got a certain amount of wisdom which I can share with people. It's a bit of a bold statement, that one. But you don't believe it. Every year we've got ten people coming around and giving satsang. This island is seething with wise people. It's teeming with wise people. And all of them are ready to counsel you and tell you about your previous lives and uh, make you shed rivers of tears for your traumas and other such things. That is, the Tibetans knew this thing, that very often people put themselves into such situations. The ridiculous thing is that if any one of you would take, try to study a little bit, teachers of yore, such as who was a satsang giver, who was the head of a spiritual community, not very long ago, let's say in 1980. Some of you are not even born in 1980, but it's relatively soon. It's after the 60s, after the 70s, in the 1980s, who was a spiritual teacher? No, like I remember that I once read the data sheet of a Playboy Center fold who said that she was a disciple of an American spiritual teacher called Rama and she actually would have loved to have sex with Rama because he was such a hot guy and so on. And like there were a lot of these leaders of spiritual communities. And then if any one of you has any journalistic spirit, please make a research. Where did they go? What happened 10 years later? What happened 20 years later? What happened to them? What happened to their community? What happened to their followers? You will be appalled at the amount of fallout which is there. Like when Paramahamsa Yogananda was a spiritual leader, he did all the things which he had to do until his death and the Self-Realization Fellowship exists even today, even though some people consider it old-fashioned and closed and something, but still, Paramahamsa Yogananda left his message. When Ramakrishna and then his disciple Vivekananda were spiritual guides, they did it for a lifetime, they died in character, that is very important, they did not die in a completely ridiculous 
preposterous way, and they stood their ground. When Swami Shivananda, or if you want women, when Mananda Mai, or other present, that's why we are not talking about those who still live, because you can always say, wait and see what will happen in 10 years. But when you have those that withstood the test of time, you see how those people were placed by the Dharma, by life itself, by God, by circumstances. They were placed in the position to be spiritual guides, to be heads of spiritual communities, and they somehow resisted. Everybody imagines, no, these people who are trying to make a quick buck by becoming uh, pseudo-gurus and uh, counselors and enlightened beings and so on, I tell you already, most of them in 10 years crumble. Some get cancer. Some are quitting spirituality. Some are doing illegal, immoral and unethical deeds. Some become deeply demonic and egocentric because the psychological pressure, the karmic pressure on somebody who is in such a position is formidable. People don't even realize what they put themselves into. In the ridiculous comedy by Mel Brooks called The History of the World, there is a beautiful scene with where he plays the King Louis XVI of France, or one of those, spoiled aristocrats, late kings of France, and uh, he's all the time uh, having access, or he's abusing in a sexual way, most of the women around. And every time he is doing some impish, devilish thing, he turns to the camera with a grin on his face and he says, it's good to be the king. Eh? Like, no, it's like many people would say, oh, Swami, it's good to sit where you sit. But you haven't been on that seat and you don't know really what it takes. That is why the Tibetans who knew it, they realized the pressure which is exerted in the moment when you make yourself head of a community or guide or of a group of people is not easy at all. That's one of the things which we teach our teachers in the teacher training programs. It's not as easy as it sounds to be a yoga teacher because to be a yoga teacher does not only involve the responsibility that you teach people the sun salutation and padahastasana and then you go. There will be people, when you are a yoga teacher, who will come to you and say, Teacher, I'm working in a slaughterhouse or I'm working in a psychiatric world and I feel now that I've been doing yoga for two weeks with you or for two months, I feel that something is seriously wrong with that and I'm thinking about quitting my job. What can you tell? Like it's not about Padahastasana. People are asking you if they should quit their job and change what they do. People are saying, Swami or teacher, if you are a yoga teacher, 
Ever since I'm doing yoga, I think I've become more sensitive and I started feeling the pain of the animals whose flesh I'm eating. And I'm seriously into turning vegetarian. What shall I do? It's not about Padahastasana. It's about telling people what to eat and what to do with their lives. Somebody is asking you if they should change their job. Somebody is asking you if they should divorce or get married. Somebody is asking you if they should take chemotherapy or have the courage to do yoga and diet for their present condition of cancer. The responsibility of standing your ground when you do those is colossal. Only an irresponsible person would act in these conditions like, oh yeah, do like this, yeah, sure. Like giving answers out of a sleight of hand and without actually considering the responsibility of all of it. That is why here the Tibetans are touching a smaller thing which addresses specially to those of you who are becoming yoga teachers and who are going to gather around you a number of people that want to study around you. It is not at all a simple thing and the pressure is big. Exactly as it is not easy to be a sex symbol like Marilyn Monroe when a million men are masturbating on your photo and ejaculate screaming Marilyn, Marilyn and that puts a lot of energy in your aura uh, wrong energy, uh, low type of energy in your aura that's why all the sex symbols are crumbling after a few years they go into alcohol and drug rehabilitation and all that which is very well known in the world of showbiz, Hollywood and all that in a similar way try to imagine how many people put their hopes on Jesus how many people when they are in trouble they say Jesus help me you might think that Jesus does not exist and you might think that Jesus does not pick the red telephone up anymore so it doesn't matter but if you understand the laws of resonance telepathy energy and all those you'll understand that every time when somebody relies on Jesus even telepathically Jesus not being here actually there is a pressure put on Jesus it's not at all a small thing to have a billion people believing that you are their savior hanging on you leaning on you that is why many many of these fake people in spirituality it's one of the most destructive thing to be for yourself as well as for the others to be a fake in spirituality because people inevitably will put energy will lean many people need a father image a mother image many people are leaning psychologically and that leaning is not unreal or hypothetical it actually 
feels in a certain way and it's a certain energy. And that is why you hear so many stories in modern times with false gurus that stumble or that tumble off their pedestals. That's why. Because they were not ripe for it. This is what Tibetans say. To be lacking in firmness of mind. Firmness of mind. What is the first thing of the mind? which a spiritual person has in terms of the mind. It is called, the Tibetans call it bodhicitta, and it means also sperm for man, and that is very significant because it shows where it comes from, but bodhicitta, literally citta is mind, and body is enlightenment, from Buddha, 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 body. And bodhicitta means mind to enlightenment. Like to think of nirvana. It means in the language of bodhicitta, in the language of agama yoga here, would be the same as aspiration. Like never forget why you are here. Never forget your goal. Like everything which happens, good or bad, keep thinking of your enlightenment. That is your guiding star. Slowly or quickly, spectacularly or in a very discreet way, everybody is going to enlightenment. Never forget that. In the moment when you gave up bodhicitta and you say, Oh yes, I live on the face of this earth, but I don't really hope I'll get enlightened in this life anymore. Yeah, I just want to end my days peacefully. You've lost the bodhicitta. You are not pulling on the path. You lost your hope. And therefore, to be lacking in firmness of mind. When you are, as it says here, the head of a spiritual community, everybody wants to get bodhicitta from you. Everybody says, when I go home, I'm losing my aspiration. I'm coming to Agama, and it's like I get a mouthful of oxygen. That mouthful of oxygen has to be sustained constantly. It has to be pumped. It comes from somewhere. And that is why if a spiritual teacher loses his bodhicitta, and then he starts going into like, uh, you know, maybe this yoga school could actually be used for fitness then this is not having firmness of mind. This is like not keeping the compass straight in that direction. It's a sort of a supreme stubbornness, like Jesus is Jesus till the last minute of his life. Yogananda is Yogananda till the last minute of his life. Mananda Mai stands as Mananda Mai till the last minute of her life. These things are non-negotiable. If you cannot do that, then you are not qualified and you shouldn't dare to dream about becoming the head of a spiritual community. Because it means you don't have the firmness and you will be like a ping-pong ball 
when 500 people or 5,000 people or 50,000 people or 500,000 people start pushing you with their minds and projecting their needs and their depression and their obsessions and their phantasms and their things on you, you will be like a ping-pong ball, bouncing in all directions, being bombarded by people's needs, by people's impulses. Therefore, the Tibetans here address a problem which does not address each and every person, but those of you that have a strong personality and sooner or later are becoming strong and shine into what you do, remember that one way or another you tend to find yourselves to be the guiders of some community. Your community can be a village of five people, you living like Robinson Crusoe on an island with a small pack of people, or your pack can be like Yogananda claimed that he gave the Kriya Yoga initiation more than a hundred thousand people in his life. Therefore, here for that you need firmness of mind, that's what the Tibetans call it. But that firmness of mind is a firmness onto spiritual things. You wouldn't believe how many people have tried and still do try to convince me to change things in the way yoga is done in Agama. If I would do that, I would be their ping-pong ball. I know exactly how I started that. That's why I even told them to put that paper at the entrance. When you are here, you are not here to change Agama Yoga, although you will try, no doubt. You are here to be changed by Agama Yoga. My stubbornness is bigger than yours. <laughs> you will not change me. I will change you or you will go away. You will go away maybe angry at me, you will go away maybe indifferent, you will go away in whichever way you will go, but it's my way or the highway in Agama. <laughs> There's no other way. Therefore, that is because I need to have that firmness of mind. And if I don't have it, I have to resign. I'm not good to be the spiritual guide of people or the spiritual inspiration of a community because that imposes, that produces self-imposed trouble as does a feeble old woman who attempts to herd cattle. It's a ridiculous but very suggestive simile, a metaphor which should give a lot of thinking, especially when people are trying to put themselves into a central position. To be in a central position, you have to be like the sun. The sun is not rocked out of its position, neither by Mercury, not by the Earth, not even Jupiter, which is a big planet, 
cannot rock the sun from its central position more than a few centimeters or millimeters. The, that's why the sun is the sun, because the sun deserves to be the sun. The sun can be the sun. The sun can hold its ground in being the sun. Nobody should try to be the sun when you are weighing as much as a feather. A feather cannot be the sun because it doesn't have the weight for it. Number five, to devote oneself wholly to selfish ambitions and not to strive for the good of others produces self-imposed trouble as does a blind man who allows himself to become lost in a desert. Another unpleasant metaphor. You can imagine a blind man getting lost in a desert. It's pathetic. It's a pathetic image. And it's a self-imposed trouble. The blind man should not go into the desert if he knows that he is blind. When you go into selfish ambitions and you don't also think about the others, you are the blind man from this story because we are connected to the others. Take any book on business success today. Some of these people that are preaching miraculous business, self-help in business and management and this, and one of the conditions which all of them have is you cannot really become a young millionaire, uh, one of the newly rich, one of the financially independent people, if you don't actually have something good to offer to the world. Like if you cannot create increased benefit, if you cannot increase the quality of life of other people, you cannot. Try to think how many of you are using today a computer. You may be, there are people who are grumbling against Bill Gates of what a cheater and an asshole he is supposed to have been. But you forget that you are using computers and most of the computers are using an operating system created under that man and developed under that man. He may have many defects and he may have, but did anybody else conceive another operation system? Sure, there are a couple of them which are coming up, but still the market shows something, which I'm trying to say, you have to give something. If something, if somebody is making you able to use computers, good or not so good, nevertheless the service is there. How many of you have been served by the fact that you have had your Word files and Excel files and whatever, and they served your purposes until now, at least to remind you of some things, or to memorize some things, or to systematize some things. You are deriving some use, even if you are critical, nevertheless there is some increased quality and something useful coming in your life. Therefore, what, they, what the Tibetans say here is that the human being has to produce something for the good of the others. Gurdjieff put it in a funny way. 
He said, in this life, it is not enough to say that you are good, like, oh, I'm a good person. Oh, I'm essentially good. He said, it's not enough to say that you are good. You have to be good for something. Not just good, period. Good, you are good, right? Good for what? Can you manufacture shoes? Can you soothsay? Can you counsel? Can what, what are you good for? Just saying I am good, it's a sterile statement because it doesn't really point at anything. Thus, it was the Dalai Lama who said, those who do not live also for the good of the others are living uselessly and they will find themselves unhappy in the later time of their lives. Like, look at people like the Dalai Lama or like Shivananda or like Mananda Mai or Amaji or other and other teachers like this and you'll see that people have the clear feeling that they are helped benefited, supported, that they are getting something, that these people live for their good as well. This is a clear message. Like, it is not wrong that you should jump, like, I'm not saying that you should jump into the opposite extreme. This is a complete misunderstanding, that you should become so selfless that you don't do anything for, you don't wash yourself, you don't clean your lice, you don't eat healthy food, you don't dress yourself, you don't do, because you have to live for the others. This is ridiculous. It's a vata, hippie, neurotic mentality, which doesn't lead to anything healthy. It's just a pretense, it's a pathological pretense, in which some people think that they are really great and good, because they neglect themselves. It's not about that. It's as Buddha said, the truth is in the middle, not in the extremes. You have to find the middle path. That's why here the Tibetans are criticizing the selfish extreme. That's why they say to devote oneself wholly, wholly, entirely, totally, to, deserve, to devote oneself entirely to selfish ambitions. Like in what you do, there is not a 10% for God. There is not a tithing. There is not a compassion. There is not something about the others, about the rest of the world. It's always about you. To devote oneself wholly to selfish ambitions and not to strive for the good of others. How much? Some people can strive a little, some people are in the condition of striving a lot. Maybe people like Mother Teresa were striving a lot. 90% of what they did was charity. Some people don't reach there. But that's why the traditional society said, at least take 10% and give it to the temple. If you can't do anything else, take 10% of your income and give it to the spiritual people who will make a charity out of it, who will make something spiritual. That's why tithing existed. Tithing existed, first of all, to save people of them from themselves, to save people from this exclusive 
selfishness, like the heck with the rest of the world, I do things for myself. Tibetan yoga says to devote yourself wholly to selfish ambitions, not to strive for the good of others. It doesn't say how much, but to strive a little bit for the good of the world, for the good of others, and in a realistic way, in a realistic way. There are many people who say they want to save the dolphins. How many people have been to that cove in Japan where they actually slaughter the dolphins? You know, it's like, how, how far would you actually go? You know, people say, I want to do some good to the dolphins, but it's words. What is the deed? What has been actually done? Not just leaving it to the level of a Svadistanistic intention of a Svadistanistic dream, but actually doing something. So, and not to strive for the good of others, at least to the extent which is possible for you, at least a bit, produces self-imposed trouble. That's self-imposed trouble. The egoistic people, the exclusively egoistic people, they are creating hell for, to them, for themselves. That's why you can see that among the wealthy, there has appeared the tradition that you should do charity. The wealthy are often intelligent, strong people. Of course, the poor always envy the wealthy, and they claim that the wealthy are assholes and rascals. But actually, very often, the wealthy are people of intelligence and power, who didn't gamble their money, who didn't take drugs, who didn't spend their nights in clubs aimlessly, and who, like Warren Buffett or others, they could tenaciously build up their wealth because that was their intent. And yet, a man like Warren Buffett donated 50% of his enormous wealth to a charity of Bill Gates, and that, like, it's not a small thing to give 30 billion dollars in charity in one go, like this. This tradition exists among the wealthy because they have realized, being some of them being intelligent, they realize that it's not worth it to keep it all for yourself because unhappiness results. They have seen some getting suicidal, bitter, unhappy. And then they said, what does it cost me to take 10% of my wealth, which is more than enough, and to do charity with it, and in this way to buy myself a bit of paradise, to create some merit with this. Everybody should think in that way. How much are you guided by selfish ambition? How much are you striving also for the good of the others. If not, it's self-imposed trouble. The blind man getting lost into a desert. Six. To undertake difficult tasks and not have the ability to perform them produces self-imposed trouble, as does a man without strength who tries to carry a heavy load. You can always imagine graphically a weakling trying to carry a heavy load. And the image 
is pathetic, is pitiful. You should not try to carry more than you can. This overestimation does not serve. It's just an inflation of the ego, because maybe some people try to live in the shoes of much greater people than they are. Therefore, to undertake difficult tasks and not to have the ability to perform them. That's the very principle of tapas or tapasya. If a tapas is more than you can undertake, then don't try it. Don't even try it, because then you are going to break it and the result will be pathetic, risible. The result will be an even further diminishing of what you are. That's why it's much more realistic to take the tapas or to undertake the tasks which you can. It's not a method stopping you from dreaming or from sometimes being heroic. Because people who are heroic, sometimes they are hidden heroes. You know, they are secret heroes, sleeping heroes. You, they didn't even know, but there is an intuition which tells to them, I can do this, I can shoulder this. And then they surprise themselves and they surprise the rest of the world of how amazing they have been. But that is a healthy intuition which acts in those moments. That is why it is a bad idea, says Tibetan yoga, to try to undertake difficult, too difficult tasks which you do not have the ability to perform. It is much better to have the realism, the modesty, the humbleness, to simply know I am not up to this task yet. That is self-imposed trouble. People who cause trouble unto themselves. Seven. To transgress the commandments of the sages or of the holy guru through pride and self-conceit produces self-imposed trouble as does a king who follows a perverted policy. A king that follows a perverted policy ends by destroying himself and causing immeasurable damage to his kingdom. Therefore, to transgress the commandments of the sages or of the holy guru through pride and self-conceit. That's getting trouble. It's much better not to have heard about the commandments of the sages, no? like, thou shall not kill, which are the commandments of the... Here is sage Moses. Sage Moses says, thou shall not... God told me, thou shall not kill. That's a commandment of the sages. In India, it may be called Ahimsa. In Tibetan yoga, may, may have been called something else. Commandments of Buddha or indications of Buddha. But not to have any of those, or to know them and not to listen to them. And some people are also blessed with having guides, one or several gurus, and not to be, not to listen to that, then it's exactly like a king following a perverted 
policy. It's trouble because people very often feel it from the standpoint of the ego. Like when you are about to steal something, you remember that it was written, thou shall not steal. And then you are taking it personally. It's like something is there to nag you. But those commandments, those teachings were not given specifically for you. It's your egocentric thing to think that everything revolves around you. Those things are way beyond you and I, way beyond the ego of a person. They represent general wisdom of this world. And that is why to transgress those, how many people today are listening to the indications of Buddha or of Krishna or of Rumi or of others like them, how many people have a teacher and seriously take into account the advice of their spiritual teacher. Not to do that, to transgress that, like my teacher told me, for six months you should be vegetarian, it's good for you, and I'm not doing it. Your teacher tells you, now you should do six Oshava diets of ten days each, one every month. It is good for your health. And you are transgressing it because you know better. Oh no, I read a book on macrobiotics and modern macrobiotics is not with this 10-day rice diet anymore. Does that matter? You have taken advice from somebody and that somebody simply told you. Not because George Oshava said, because I am telling you now, do this six times, six months, once per month. What's so difficult to understand? But people transgress those. Why? Tibetan yoga is clear. Because of pride and self-conceit. Oh, who are you to tell me what to do? Oh, I know better. Tibetan yogis say then don't transgress it. It is much more easy if you didn't ask. Don't ask, so you don't receive an answer. So you don't have to transgress it. Then at least the whole cycle will not be there. But if you bother to ask, then listen. Because all these things are producing some ripples in the mind. Realize that here we are dealing with the power of the mind, with the subconscious mind. Because your own conscience knows I ask and I transgressed. At least I can say I never asked, so therefore there was nothing to transgress. But I asked, and then I transgressed anyway. Then why? Then of course, remember that even in our yoga courses, in the second level of Agama teachings, as soon as you start studying the laws of the mind, it is said very clearly, it is your own mind which, like your conscience, absolves you or condemns you. There is no need for any external judge. Everybody has got a very objective, unbiased and completely detached judge 
inside their own spirit. And that judge is simply acting according to this cosmic law. So, don't produce ripples if you don't want the effects of those ripples. Number eight. To waste one's time loitering about towns and villages instead of devoting it to meditation produces self-imposed trouble as does a deer that descends to the valley instead of keeping to the fastness of the mountains. This is a statement which comes from solitary meditators like Tibetan yogis had two big choices. Sit up in your hut and do your meditation, yoga, whatever you do, come to the village just for begging your food and for ensuring survival and quickly, quickly go back there and do your thing. Or, of course, some yogis don't think you are the first ones in the world. Some yogis were getting bored. It's a very, very well-known thing that if you live alone or in small communities and if you do the same thing from morning till evening, the monkey mind gets bored and it starts torturing you with a need. Oh, let's take the motorbike and roam around the island. Why? Simply because I'm neurotic. Simply because I'm bored and neurotic. And what did the Tibetan yogis who fell in this trap did? The text tells us it is a problem, otherwise the gurus wouldn't have mentioned it. To waste one's time loitering about towns and villages. Like, yes, there were Tibetan yogis who were just roaming aimlessly through towns and villages, pretending that they had something to do. And today, one of you comes to me in an interview and says, Swami, I'm a very not sociable person. I feel like staying in my house and doing my practice, and other people are reproaching me. Blessed are you that you can stay in your house and do your practice. What do you want, to be loitering about towns and villages? Isn't it better that you stay ten years in your room and you emerge from there like Buddha? Isn't that a hundred times better? Not everybody has the vocation of being a public person. There are many people who feel like staying, meditating, reading a book. Like there are many people, if you tell them, tonight there is the Aquarius party, or whatever party there will be soon. Now we are in the Pisces. There comes the Pisces party in Agama. Do you want to go to the party or do you want to read a book? There are three hours. What will you use those three hours for? There are many people who say, I would prefer to stay with a book in my room. There's nothing wrong with that. Stop blaming yourselves for that. Many, many yogis and yoginis have been loners. And that loneliness, loneliness, whatever you call it, it has been salvational for them. Because just going in town to touch antlers, like the ants, you know, the ants, when they congregate, they keep on buzzing 
the antlers with each other. They touch their horns with each other. Like, why do you go into a crowd just to buzz horns with each other, you know? We're still here, we're still here, we're still here. Like, what is this? This is new roses. Keep your antlers to yourself. Keep your horns to yourself, you know? Stay in the house. You don't need to touch them with anybody. There were people who stayed 30 years alone and they became great enlightened beings. That, that is, do not consider that if you don't want to go out to a party, that's a problem. Maybe the people who cannot stay inside the house have a problem because they want to loiter around towns and villages. That is the Tibetan guru. It's true. Their yoga was a bit ascetic. Their yoga was this hardcore thing. But still, confronting it with their society, realize the yogis, and I've, I've seen it in India, I've seen it in Tibet, people who are supposed to be monks or yogis or something, and they were not doing their thing. They were doing other things. They were fooling around. They were wasting themselves into doing all sorts of other things. So to waste one's time loitering about towns and villages instead of devoting it to meditation produces self-imposed trouble as does a deer that descends to the valley instead of keeping to the fastness of the mountains. The deer, when it is up in the mountains, you won't see it, you won't catch it. And neither will the predators. But in the moment when the deer descends in the valley, it becomes available to the hunters and to some of the predators. Therefore, the deer puts itself at peril by coming into the valley. That's what the Tibetan yogis say. You go to the cities and the villages, the temptations will multiply by 100. Stay in your room and meditate, and your path will be without bumps on the road. You are just going to go straight forward on your path without too much temptation. And some people will say, is it that simple? Isn't it a matter of karma? It is that simple because when you have a good karma, then you don't feel like going and bumping your head against the wall and encountering countless temptations, which then you blame on the environment. They are not to be blamed on the environment. Who exposes you to those temptations? You! Because if you would be sitting in your cell instead of loitering in towns and villages, those temptations would have not appeared. Therefore, it is karma, but that karma manifests always through your own mind, through your own needs, through your own way of being. 9 and the last but 1. To be absorbed in the pursuit of, world, pursuit of worldly things rather than in nourishing the growth of divine wisdom produces self-imposed trouble as does an eagle that breaks its own wing. You are an eagle. You could soar towards nirvana. But if you are a neurotic, masochistic eagle, sometimes you break your own wing foolishly. That's self-imposed trouble, because then you can't fly anymore, at least for a period of time. 
and you can't fly anymore, instead of cultivating the divine wisdom, which is a gift that stays with you forever, and which is primary, then you are going absorbed in the pursuit of worldly things. Whatever those worldly things are, name, fame, wealth, whatever it is. It doesn't really say in a tantric understanding that that is wrong. But Jesus has made it very clear. He said, reach ye first the kingdom of heaven and then all the rest shall be given to you hundredfold. Like if today is the last day of your life, what should you get today? A house? A house of your own with a piece of land? Or nirvana? If today is the last day of your life. Most people when they choose the house instead of the nirvana, they are absurdly betting on the fact that this is not the last day of their lives. Ah, yeah, of course, if it would be the last day, then Swami is right. But I guess it's not the last day of my life. That's just a bet. And ultimately, in the big picture, it will make no difference when you zoom back the camera. Therefore, the idea is that, fine, the worldly things have their thing, like Swami Shivananda did a lot of worldly things. But first he lived for 18 years in Rishikesh and reached enlightenment. Then the worldly things, hospitals and colonies and societies and printing presses, and they came. But first he achieved what was of importance. If you live your life having built a colony for lepers but not having reached Samadhi, it's not the same thing and it will not take you to the same end as if you reach Samadhi and you never build a colony for lepers. The priority is clear and everybody can see it. You don't need to be a genius to see it. But unfortunately we make ourselves deaf and blind to it. Like it's too much and we have desires and those desires are too intense and we cannot stand withstand those desires and then we simply corrupt what our soul tells us. Our soul knows people don't trust into their divine nature. But everybody is Shiva. Everybody is God. Everybody has a divine consciousness. It's not that difficult to access the divine source in you. Because it's right under your nose. It's what you are. It's not that difficult. It's not to be asked something of a cosmic scope to go beyond yourself and do something superhuman and impossible. It's just to recognize something which exists and it is there. And yet, if people would accept that their soul is God and divine then people would have to listen to the voice of the soul. And then they would have to really do the right thing. And that's why people prefer to say, oh, that's just my imagination or my psyche. And then they don't listen to it, because in this way they have an excuse. And then hypocritically, 
they come and say, if I would have known that that came from God, it would have been a totally different story. It does come from God. It's right there. Your soul has the nature of Shiva. It is God. And it knows perfectly well what you need and what is happening. That is why the first thing to be obtained is the growth of wisdom. Because if at any moment you die, that's the only thing which you can take with you. Your evolution, your degree of spiritual consciousness, that's the only thing which comes with you in the future. And that's the only thing on which you can build. All the other worldly pursuits, one person now is famous, now becomes unknown and forgotten. Now is wealthy, now he or she dies and has nothing. It's not that wealth is wrong. Because if you are like Buddha and somebody gives you a huge sum of money so you are also wealthy, then it's fine for Buddha to fly first class on an airplane. It's not a big deal. It's, it's more comfortable. Even Buddha knows that. That to sleep in a chair in economy class or to sleep on a bed in first class makes a difference when you fly overnight with an airplane. Even Buddha cannot be that stupid as not to notice that. So it's not that Buddha would refuse a good bed to sleep in. <coughs> but Buddha says first, I need to get nirvana. Because if you give me just comfortable beds and I don't reach nirvana, then all those comfortable beds will go, will disappear in the mist of time, and in the end I will have been left with nothing except a few pleasant memories that I had a few comfortable nights here and there. That's not what matters. And that is why here they make again the priority clear to be absorbed in the pursuit of worldly things rather than in nourishing the growth of divine wisdom, which is the eternal thing, produces self-imposed trouble as does an eagle that breaks its wing. Don't break your wings. Fly. Soar. That's what we are. We are the divine wisdom, and it is a pity not to explore it, not to reach it. Finally, the last for tonight is shamelessly to misappropriate offerings which have been dedicated to the Guru or to the Trinity produces self-imposed trouble as does a child swallowing live coals. Monks living in monasteries, sometimes they were the object of donations. People made donations for Guru Rinpoche, for Padmasambhava. People made donations for the Buddha, Dharma and Sangha. And then somebody would embezzle of those. Please realize, normal people don't realize that. But the people who made those donations, they put their hearts into it. They put their soul, they put their expectations, they put their hopes into it. There is a burning thing into a donation which is given to the church, to a temple, to a monk, to something like this, because there is a hope 
into it. Listen again to the lecture on aparigraha, on giving up even presents and things which are not specifically yours. Because there is an expectation there. And when people give you a present, there can be some mundane expectations. But when people are dealing with spiritual things, then there, there are very radical expectations. And when people donate something for Buddha, for Shiva, for Guru Padmasambhava or something, then that thing is consecrated. And many monks, and it has happened in the monastic environment all the time, they would embezzle it. There has been so much scandal at a much lower level, of course, but still is the same principle. When they discovered that Christian preachers in America, they were becoming extremely wealthy and flying private jets and things like this. It's like people were giving donations for Jesus, and some people, instead of flying a normal airline or something, they bought themselves private jets. Was that private jet really necessary? And therefore, this is hijacking money, <coughs> which is consecrated spiritually. Those money are consecrated spiritually, and that simply says they belong to God. They belong to Shambhala. They belong to Guru Padmasambhava or some, because that is how they are consecrated. And you as a human being take advantage of the fact that there is nobody to slap your wrist and you hijack them, you embezzle them. You don't realize what you are doing. Because the thing which you are putting in your pocket is like money which has been marked by the police. You are having the hottest stuff in your pocket because you have just embezzled the money of Shambhala. And says Tibetan yogis, shamelessly to misappropriate offerings which have been dedicated to the Guru or to the Trinity, produces self-imposed trouble as does a child swallowing live coals. That's a very harsh metaphor. A child swallowing live coals is a tragedy and most probably death. A man, an old man getting lost in the desert is pathetic. But a child swallowing Live coal is tragic. It's not pathetic anymore. That is why this is leading to a very bitter state of existence. I remember when I was living in India, some people from the home ministry, they came and started asking for bribes for me to be able to stay in India. There are I've heard rumors where people say that I'm not in India because I've done something wrong or something. I am not in India because I refused to pay bribes to corrupt officials who conditioned my staying in India as being a foreigner to this. 
and those bribes were enormous by Indian standards, and they were increasing. For my own peace of mind, this could have been an option, like take 50% of the money of Agama and give them to the Home Ministry, and have protection for life. But those money were given, Agama being a spiritual place, they are given in the name of spirituality. I am a Swami. I don't do business. A Swami receives donations. A Swami receives charity. And that is Shambhala's money. That is God's money. And therefore, I simply felt that I did not want to hijack those money to some greedy people because it will even burn them because they don't realize who it's not the same if you are taxing me money than if you are taxing somebody that has a restaurant. Somebody that has a restaurant has a business and they can pay protection or whatever they pay. But if you start taxing the monastery, then you are taxing money which have been given with the soul of godliness like the people that sponsor the monastery, they put their spiritual aspiration. For them, that is gaining merit. I make a donation and I hope to gain merit. And then those money is embezzled or something of the kind. Those money carries with them stigma. Those money carries with them dynamite. It's burning the lining of your pocket when you have them because you don't realize what, what is contained there. That's why the Tibetans, this ha must have happened several times, that in monasteries somebody got in a greedy position and they started, started making things for themselves, for their family, for their friends and so on. Shamelessly to misappropriate offerings, 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 which have been dedicated to the Guru or to the Trinity. The Trinity in Tibet is Buddha, Dharma and Sangha, is the three jewels. It's, it means to the religion, to the spirituality, to misappropriate things which are from there produces self-imposed trouble, as does a child swallowing live coals. There are many people who have this. They say, oh yeah, but Agama has money. It doesn't mean that they are there to be embezzled. You are playing with dynamite when you do that. Because the people that gave money to a place like Agama, or to a Buddhist monastery, or to some Shivananda ashram, or some place like this, they gave those money with a spiritual dedication and with the hope of making merit out of it. And therefore, if you hijack them, you'll have to pay for the difference, because that merit will not be acquired. And, there, and that merit is very, very hard to compensate in any way. That is why people, when they play with religious things, they don't even realize what they are dealing with. For example, in Tibet, their civilization had become so spiritual that they had 
one rule which is applied in many places. You can see it even in Thailand with their Buddhas and so on, but it's not applied so much to private people. In Tibet, this was an unwritten rule, an unwritten law. Gold and jewels, not silver, but gold and precious stones were to be kept for the Buddhas, like for the Buddha statues. Like laymen were not supposed to wear gold and stones as a sort of a gesture of humbleness. Like put Buddha above you. Let only Buddha wear gold and precious stones. You put your head down and be humble a little bit. Show that you have respect for the spiritual things. And therefore people were donating stones and gold to the monasteries, which were transforming them in statues. Even today, you see that people go to Buddhist statues and they line them with gold. They buy gold leaves and they put those gold leaves. That's where it comes from. You know, like, give the gold to Buddha. You are not giving it to the monks, because the monks are not going to lick off the gold of the Buddha statues. It's there to stay, but it's a way of showing value. As above, so below. If you physically are ready to give your value to the monastery, it means that psychologically, emotionally and spiritually, you also place Buddha high. Wherever your wealth is, so that's where your heart will be, says Jesus. It's a way of demonstrating something. It's a psychological thing. That's why people make donations to monasteries, to spiritual institutions, and so on. Because they put in it their desire for merit. And God behave on those people who misuse those things. You have to know these things, and there is a responsibility in dealing with such things. I have known people who tried to break these rules violently and uh, it was not good for them. It was really bitter. Self-imposed trouble as does a child swallowing live coals. It's a child. Like, he doesn't know. It's exactly like Jesus when they crucify him. Those people are a bunch of drunk Roman soldiers. They don't have a clue about who Jesus might be. That's why Jesus rightly prays. He says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. It's exactly in a, in a similar way, of course, at a much smaller level. It is the same thing here as a child swallowing life. Like the poor child doesn't know what it's doing. And when the coal was swallowed, and it's too late to take it back, then the harm is done already. And that is why the last self-imposed trouble is to misappropriate offerings made to religion and spirituality. This being said, we have gone through the list of ten self-imposed troubles which teaches you how not to sabotage yourself, which are the things which are done through one's own decision. Let us remain in silence for a couple of minutes, allowing these things, this spirit of Tibetan yoga,
to sink in, after which we can stop for tonight. We'll meet in the next weeks, going deeper, still a few weeks, four or five weeks of analyzing this Tibet teachings of Tibetan yogis, after which we'll move to another subject in our presentations. This was a live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati. For more information, visit us on agamayoga.com or go directly to agamayoga.com slash downloads.